we were trapped, imprisoned. It's as simple as that. Bulldozers on one side of the town destroying our crops, snipers on the other. And all around us, minefields, checkpoints, soldiers drunk with war and power. And inside the town, missiles exploding over our heads, raining down maimings, amputations and death. I'd always known I'd end up here, or somewhere like here. I'd known since I was nine years old. I was watching television with my mother when images of famine were beamed into our suburban living room. Famine caused by drought is the worst in living memory. I know what I'm going to do, I told my mother. I'm going to help children like this. From that moment on, I never wanted to do anything else. My first assignment was to Mogadishu. That was eight years ago. And I've been working with children in crisis ever since. I've worked in war-torn countries and countless refugee camps, flying from one emergency to another, into earthquakes, hurricanes, droughts. My role is to listen to children, to record what they tell me and communicate their needs to the rest of the world. I thought I'd seen and heard a lot, until the civil war in Syria. Soon after the conflict started, I was talking with refugee children on the Syria-Lebanon border, trying to find out what they needed. I thought I knew what they'd tell me about. Long bread queues, dirty drinking water. But nothing prepared me for what I actually heard. After the missiles and bombings came the kidnappings. Armed groups roaming the town, massacres. Do you know who lives in this town now? Women and children, old people, the injured, the men, the strong ones in their prime, the so-called rebels. Where are they? You tell me. I don't see them. Not anymore. Kidnapped, mutilated, killed, all of them. But still the regime comes looking for them, with bombs and rockets, searching with sniper fire and machine guns, tracking them down by torturing children. That's when I made my decision. I was going to take my grandchildren out of this hell to safety in Lebanon, to my niece's house. I told my son and his wife my decision. They didn't like it, but they didn't argue. Who else could do it? My son? He'd be shot by snipers before he reached the outskirts of town. My daughter-in-law? She might feel old and worn out, but she's still young enough to be of interest to those animals. So it was up to me. An old woman, yes, but still strong from a lifetime working this land. I knew the countryside. I knew places we could hide. And it had to be now, before Laila turned 12. I would hear no arguments. I couldn't help my son now. But my three grandchildren? I could save them. I looked at their faces as I sang them to sleep at night. There is only one thing more precious than your children in Syria. And that's your children's children. A young boy, Hassan, approached me. Why are you asking me about food and water? 
when I've seen my friends executed in front of me, he said. I've picked their body parts off the street. Why don't you ask me about that? Our first priority when working with refugees is survival. Looking after the basic needs. Food, shelter, sanitation. Hassan taught me that these children needed something different. It wasn't what they ate or didn't eat that worried them. It was what they'd seen, what they'd witnessed, what had been done to their parents and friends. It was a fear they felt every time they heard a loud noise. The nightmares that came when they laid their heads down to sleep. Some were desperate to tell their stories, to have someone listen. Others weren't able to speak at all. They all needed help to recover from the trauma they had suffered. In Gaza, two Palestinian practitioners taught me a simple but effective therapy that was used in Lebanon. They would ask the child to think about what was upsetting them. The pain, the grief, the fear. And then blow all of it into a balloon as hard as they could. Then they gave the child the balloon and let them do with it whatever they wanted. Sometimes a child will just sit and look at the balloon and cry. Sometimes they put it away into a cupboard or under a bed. But sometimes they pop the balloon. And then, just for that one day or that hour, they're able to move past their grief. The child gets to decide what to do with their feelings. And in that way, they take back some control. In the old days, you could walk straight into Lebanon. It would only take a couple of hours through gently rolling hills dotted with almond trees and olive groves. Not anymore. Now the journey might take weeks, avoiding Syrian and Lebanese military checkpoints, going around certain towns and villages, avoiding main roads. We traveled at night. The first stage was the most dangerous, the death journey, they call it. Mines had been planted in all the fields surrounding the town. But a safe route had been found. The feet of hundreds of travelers before us had worn a thin path across the fields only a few meters wide. One stray step either side and you could step on a mine. Like stepping stones across a stream, I told the children, you have to stay on the path and hold on to each other. Like elephants marching trunk to tail, said Layla. The two boys looked eagerly at me. Yes, steady like an elephant, I said, but quiet as a mouse. And brave as a lion, Tare piped in. He was eight years old, the youngest of the three. Many people make this journey. Mostly women, children and injured men groups that are no threat. They cling to the hope that if stopped they might be allowed passage. But getting stopped isn't the only threat. Nor are the mines. All through the night soldiers fire their machine guns randomly into the darkness. Who knows why? Maybe they're bored or drunk. Maybe they are told to do so. 
mostly they hit nothing, wasting hundreds of rounds on rabbits and shadows. But sometimes their wild shootings hit a group. Some are killed or wounded instantly, others panic and run off the path and straight into the mines. In larger groups, children have been trampled to death or lost and never found again. There are so many stories, so many tragedies, but we had no choice. We had to keep going, to concentrate only on keeping to the path. As we slowly crossed the minefields with only the light of the moon guiding our steps, I could hear Tare whispering to himself, brave as a lion, brave as a lion. The things that have been done to children in Syria, the stories that have been told to me, are hard to imagine. Schools turned into torture chambers where children are taken, locked up and beaten until their parents turn themselves in. Children strapped to tanks and used as human shields. I've seen bullet wounds on ten-year-olds, cigarette burns on nine-year-olds. I gathered these stories over three years. I wrote them down on paper, typed them up into articles, took pictures and videos. And once I'd heard them, I carried them too. We carried a little food and water with us, but I knew it would not last. We had to scavenge along the way. We dug potatoes out of the ground with our bare hands, drank dirty water from broken irrigation pipes. We slept in a shepherd's hut with nothing more than sheep droppings covering the floor. We were deep in the hills now, and after a week of traveling, the children were starting to tire. They didn't need reminding to be quiet as a mouse anymore. With every mile we walked, their steps got slower. I would sink to them at night and they fell asleep quickly despite the cold, hard floor. Then we had the luck to be offered a lift by a farmer. He shared bread and water with us and settled us in the trailer that he pulled behind his tractor. We all slept, the food in our stomachs giving us some peace from hunger. When the tractor stopped, we woke up. We stumbled out of the trailer and looked around. The farmer had driven us right to the Lebanese border. He helped us out and with a friendly wave, he drove off. And there we were, surrounded by soldiers, right in front of a checkpoint. The important thing is not to feel helpless or overwhelmed to remember that you are doing something to help. But it was becoming harder and harder to pick up my old life again. People would ask about my work, and I would have to think carefully about what to tell them. What story would convey the truth without making everyone feel uncomfortable? And when they told me about their life, their new boyfriend, the terrible commute, I found it harder and harder to relate. On my last trip home, I went to the pub with friends. But I felt disconnected from it all. The endless choice of wine and beer, the music, the laughing and joking. None of it meant anything to me. It was as if they were speaking a different language. 
My daughter won't sleep in her own bed at the moment, I heard one friend say. She's having nightmares about monsters under the bed. I wanted to say that I'd met someone whose daughter was having nightmares too. Her little girl saw her father and brothers die when a bomb hit the ground floor of their house. Now she can't sleep. Her mother woke up in the middle of the night and found her daughter staring at her, squeezing her hands. She's too afraid of the nightmares to sleep, so she holds onto her mother's hands and watches her all night until she wakes up. How could I tell them what I was really thinking? How could we be sitting here trying to decide between still and fizzy water when these horrors were happening elsewhere in the world? I often get asked, how do you do it? How do you do your job? But they're asking the wrong question. They should be asking, how do they do it? The mothers and fathers, the children who have endured so much, how do they find the strength to carry on? But sometimes, when I couldn't sleep, or when I was overwhelmed by the choice of bread in the supermarket, I would ask myself a similar question. Do I have the strength to carry on? As a grandmother in Syria, you hold the position of power. You earn it. You work hard all your life in the fields, in the kitchen, you raise the children, and when your grandchildren are born, then you are the head of the family. I wasn't scared of the soldiers. To me, they are all boys. Ignorant, stupid boys playing with guns because they never grew up. I walked up to the checkpoint. These children's parents have been killed, I told them. I am taking them to live with their aunt in Lebanon. There is nothing for them in Syria now. One of the soldiers looked up, smoke from his cigarette clouding his face. Whose side are you on? He asked me. I laughed. You think I care about sides? You're all the same to me. No one wins a war. Not you, not them. No one. The soldier stood up, grinding his cigarette into the dirt, and walked towards me. In the camp, it was not hard to find children needing specialist care. It had become clear that children were being specifically targeted in Syria, and the children who had suffered abuse and torture were now the focus of my work. Sexual violence, like in so many wars, was being used as a weapon. One lady told me that she found the naked bodies of five little girls, all between the ages of 10 and 12 years old. They'd been raped, killed, and laid out on the ground as a warning to the community. Each child I meet, I remember. And when I leave them, a little piece of me stays behind. And now, three years after I'd started the work, I didn't have much left. I felt as if I was losing parts of myself and carrying bits of other people instead. Their grief, their suffering. I punished myself for my weakness. How dare I be struggling when the children I worked with had been through so much? I looked him in the eye and saw that he was laughing too. He waved us through with a nod of his head. These men, they don't respect life, they don't respect themselves, but in Syria, you always respect your grandmother. Days later, we arrived at my niece's house. 
the journey on this side of the border was quicker. There was less need to hide. People shared their food with us. Bus drivers let us ride for free. The first night that we arrived, I settled the children to sleep and sat on my bed. Hot food in my stomach, warm tea in my hand, and a soft bed for the first time in weeks. But I couldn't sleep. I replayed the journey in my mind, thinking back over every stage. Where dangers could have been avoided? Where we had found food? Where we could have taken a quicker route? The villages along the way where people had helped us. Places where there was shelter or safe houses. Which checkpoints were manned by militia groups? Which had sympathetic soldiers? I imagined making the journey again, incorporating all that I'd learned. Doing it quicker, better, safer. And in my imagination, I brought back more children. One night, maybe two, three nights I would stay to rest and recover. Three nights to settle the children, then my path was clear. I was still strong enough. I would go back. What use were my last years sitting here doing nothing when I had a way to help? I could do something that no one else can do and so I must. It's as simple as that. It was in Lebanon that I finally met the person who gave me the courage to get help. I'd met a young boy called Tarek, who had escaped from a town close to Homs. His tale was so familiar by now. The constant fear he'd experienced at home, the pain of leaving his parents, the friends and family he had lost. Now he barely speaks. I learnt from his aunt that it was Tarek's grandmother who had taken him across country to Lebanon with his brother and older sister. They'd crossed checkpoints, survived minefields, slept in caves and huts. And this old woman, almost 70, had brought her three grandchildren to safety. That alone was incredible, but not unique. It was what his grandmother did next that was so extraordinary. She had turned round and done the same journey again. First with their uncle's children, then with some children from their neighbourhood, then again and again. I'm growing tired now. My legs ache. I'm slower than I used to be. Sometimes I wonder how many more journeys I can make. My grandchildren beg me to stay. Tarek particularly needs me. They are already growing up without their parents. Every time I leave, it adds to their fear. I'm not worried for myself. I've lived a long life, and unlike these children, it's been mostly peaceful. It's the children that I worry about. They have lived for so long in fear. I've seen the damage it does. I have rocked them in my arms as they cry through the night. I've sunk to them when they wake screaming from their nightmares. I've seen it with my own grandson. Such a joyful little baby. Such a brave little boy. He rarely speaks anymore. A couple of weeks later, Tarek took me to meet his grandmother. She wanted to learn more about the work we were doing. We met at his aunt's house, and in a small room with no furniture, just rugs on the floor, we talked. 
She wanted to know everything about the support that Tarek was getting, and most importantly, what she could do to help. She told me that she'd promised the children that when they got to Lebanon, they would be safe, but she couldn't keep them safe from their own fears. I told her about some of the activities that we do with the children, how drawing and singing and even playing with puppets could it help them express their fears, or how drawing a map of all the people they loved could remind the children that they were not alone. And I told her how valuable her help would be. The children obviously adored her, and the traditional songs that she knew, the old stories she could tell them, just her physical presence could help the children feel safe. It was getting late, and the lamps were being turned on when finally she seemed to have learned enough. She looked at me intently. Yes, she said. This is good. I know that there is no cure. No magic pill to make everything better. But to know that there is another way for me to help the children eases my heart. But as I looked at this young woman, I saw something in her eyes that I knew so very well. The strain, the exhaustion of carrying a burden for too long. Why do you do what you do? I asked her. Tell me, why do you do this job for so many years? Not everyone can do this work, no matter how much they care. But I can. So I must. This is your head talking. No matter what my head says, when the strength has gone in my legs, I must rest. So I stop for a while, catch my breath. How can I help the children if I cannot walk myself? She took my face in her hands and pulled it close to hers. You are tired, she said. Too tired to carry anyone else. You need to rest. Catch your breath. I was so shocked, I only managed to smile and thank her for the tea. She walked to the door holding my hand and then, just as she must have done with so many children, she drew me into her arms. Go home, she whispered. And when you're ready, come back to us. So I did. You might not listen to your parents. You might not listen to yourself. But when a Syrian grandmother tells you something, you listen. Even so, it wasn't until I was flying home that the truth of what she said really hit me. I was half asleep as the air stewardess talked through the safety procedures. And I heard the familiar words. In case of an emergency, if the oxygen masks come down, fit your own first before helping someone else. Suddenly, it was so obvious to me. You can't help someone else to breathe if you are not breathing yourself. I realized I hadn't breathed easily in a very long time. The strength in my legs might have gone, but I can still help the children. Many of them come with us to the activity center now. We sing, we tell stories, and we remember the people we left behind. Tarek misses his parents. I miss them too. 
आई मिस माई सन थारिस्टिल डजेंट स्पीक टू अदर्ट्स मच बट ही लाइक्स टू विस्पर स्टोरीज टू द पपट्स दैट द काउंसलर्स गिव हिम एंड ही प्लेज मोर नाउ Sometimes when he runs round the yard waving his arms about I see that same little boy who was brave as a lion These children have the right to be happy to have hopes and dreams It's their future that matters now I don't travel so much now I'm not on the ground for every emergency but I still go to Lebanon to continue my work with Syrian children. I know that my experiences have changed me, and sometimes that feels overwhelming. But just like the children, I've learned that it is up to me what I do with these feelings. And more and more often now, I can move past them completely. Anywhere but home is a 6 episode audio drama brought to you by Save the Children. Special thanks to Kat Carter for sharing her personal story and providing the inspiration behind this episode. To find out more about Kat and the Syrian children whose stories inspired this episode, go to www.savethechildren.net/anywherebuthome. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work of Save the Children, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Anywhere but home was written and created by Alexia Singh. Directed by Alexia Singh. Produced by Natasha Coleman. Sound design, editing, and music by Nikki French. Casting by Meryl and Leslie. Script editor Ben Lambert recorded at One Louder Studios The Grandmother was performed by Amira Ghazala and Cat was played by Zoe Tapper